Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 6th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll talk about Urban Meyer's possible ouster as the head football coach at Ohio State due to his failure to act on reports that one of his assistants was a domestic abuser. We'll also discuss the Pro Football Hall of Fame, how Terrell Owens and Ray Lewis presented themselves, and what we should make of their lives and careers. And we'll look at the NFL's new helmet rule and whether it will change the game. Stefan Fatsis is out this week playing in the North American Scrabble Championship, as one does. <laughs> Sitting in this week and joining from our Brooklyn studio is Laura Wagner, former hang-up intern extraordinaire, now a writer at Deadspin, sitting out the Scrabble Championship for just years consecutively. <laughs> yeah, just just so Stefan can win, you know. Uh, it's very generous of you. Next year, 2019, it's going to be all <laughs> Wagner at the Scrabble Championship. Uh, with her in Brooklyn is Vincent Cunningham, who writes for The New Yorker, also sitting out the Scrabble Championship um, and allowing Stefan to take uh, top honors. Great What's sadness up, for me, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy for Stefan. <laughs> Are you a Scrabble player? I am not. I've only ever lost at Scrabble. I don't think I've ever, I don't can't remember a moment of victory in that, that game. We've got to get you to Buffalo then. We need to, <laughs> we need to give Fatsa some, uh, some W's. All right, let us uh, start with Urban Meyer. On July 23rd, Brett McMurphy reported that Courtney Smith had recently filed a domestic violence protection order against her husband, Ohio State wide receivers coach Zach Smith. Zach Smith was fired by Ohio State that same day. The next day, July 24th, Ohio State head coach Urban Meyer said at Big Ten Media Day that he knew about a 2009 domestic violence allegation against Smith that happened when both men were coaches at Florida. But Meyer claimed to have no knowledge of any later incident. Here is what he said at Media Day. 2015, I got a text late last night that something happened in 2015 and uh, there was nothing, uh, unless, once again, there's nothing. You know, once again, I don't know who creates a story like that. After that press conference, McMurphy came out with another report in which Courtney Smith detailed Zach's alleged abuse, saying he put his hands around her throat and pushed her against the wall. She also shared photos that showed her bruised and bleeding, and she said she'd shared those photos with Urban Meyer's wife. Last week, Ohio State put Meyer on administrative leave, while the university investigates what he knew and when he knew it. And Meyer put out a statement admitting that he did know about the abuse, saying, my intention was not to say anything inaccurate or misleading. However, I was not adequately prepared to discuss these sensitive personnel issues with the media. And I apologize for the way I handled those questions. Laura, that statement is obviously BS. The question that he was 
asked about Zach Smith was the first question he faced the press conference. He answered it in detail, and they had just fired Zach Smith. So he was obviously prepared for it. He knew that he was going to be asked. I mean, there's a lot more background we can get into about all this, but I just want to say I was very surprised, even with everything I just laid out, that Meyer was put on leave. Um, So I'm wondering if you think it's a sign that institutions are taking domestic violence more seriously, or if you think there are particular circumstances here at Ohio State beyond that broad societal trend. Yeah, I think it's a sign that institutions are interested in looking like they're taking domestic violence more seriously. I think the whole we are investigating this thoroughly uh, announcement is just part of the process of keeping Urban Meyer on staff. I will be very surprised if he does get fired, but I think the investigation is, is just part of the defense process. I mean, he is basically only saying that he handled the question wrong. He's still not admitting any guilt. Um, Zach Smith is still saying that he never hit his wife, Courtney, that it was just everything he did was in self-defense. And none of this is adding up. And the fact that Ohio State's um, AD hasn't even addressed this at all when Zach Smith said he knew about the abuse. I mean, the whole thing, like you said, is is bullshit. And um, I, and I don't think they're actually taking it seriously. It seems like maybe what Meyer intended to do in that statement, Vincent, is, uh, you know, whether it's blame Gene Smith, the athletic director, um, specifically, or whether it's to allow himself to be hireable for the next job by basically (laughs) saying, I followed protocol. That's basically what everyone says in situations like this. It's it was somebody else's responsibility. And that's what Meyer is essentially saying here. Whatever, whatever I did or didn't do, um, you know, it was somebody else's job to to look into this. Right. Which in some way is kind of steers us away from the actual moral issue at hand, which is that you do more than is required of you. You do you there's a sense of morality that transcends like bureaucracy, right? I mean, the the, the it is a sign, I think, of some kind of progress that it's like he didn't do these things, but the fact that he would allow that within the ranks of his program, you know, it's we think of that as a stain in a way that we might not have before. And so to, to you know make an argument based on proceduralism just shows kind of how um, I, I think compromised he's been and, and not just here elsewhere, you know, in his, um, his time as a coach in, in Florida, he famously was the coach of Aaron Hernandez, who was showing signs of the kinds of the, the kinds of things that he later on got in trouble for under um, sort of the care of urban Meyer. I think he's been a sort of systemic uh, kind of turn the head away and, um, so I think this is just an extension of a, a bad pattern for him. Yes, Andrea Adelson wrote in a good piece for ESPN about Meyer's tenure at Florida. There were 31 players arrested there during six uh, years as, as a head coach, 10 accused of crimes ranging from misdemeanor battery to felony domestic assault to felony theft to domestic battery. And he didn't leave there in disgrace, Laura, he left there of his own 
accord because he said he was burned out and and stressed out by the pressure of trying to put together a championship team. I mean, I wonder if there it is a sign of progress, even if, as you said, this is because they do, they want to look like they're being tough on domestic violence. I mean, that's at least better than what the situation was in Florida, where they didn't even care about looking like anything. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I do think that's probably because um, domestic violence has it's just a bigger issue than it used to be. So I guess that is progress. Um, but I'm I'm wary of giving them too much credit because if they don't fire him or if they don't fire the AD, then I think this is pretty much all for nothing. Well, there's also the situation at Ohio State right now um, involving the wrestling program and allegations of longstanding sexual abuse there. Um, obviously, Jim Jordan is involved in that. There's litigation from wrestlers that names him as well as other folks at Ohio State. So this is just an enormous, enormous mess at Ohio State right now. And so they might be more sensitive than another school that just was dealing with this individual Zach Smith situation in isolation. Right. Well, and Ohio State is also, the football program is also home to Greg Schiano, who famously knew about the sexual abuse at Penn State, and um, Kevin Wilson, who was accused of mistreating athletes at Indiana, and they were both brought to Ohio State. Um, So clearly, Ohio State has no qualms about hiring and keeping people who have have done bad things. Um, And so I I, I don't know if I I think this is just more along those lines. Yeah, it reminds me it really the parallels for me are really interesting in terms of the Catholic Church right now. There's um, there's been a lot of talk in the there was a big times piece about this um, cardinal who used to be the sort of archbishop over um, Washington, D.C. and is very powerful. uh, This guy, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. And not only is it awful that he was a serial abuser of seminarians and uh, it later came out young people, but that many people within the hierarchy knew this about him. And um, there's this same kind of culture of priests and uh, other kind of clerical figures who are supposed to be these kind of like superhero, like send your son to me and I'll shape him up in the same way that like football coaches, right? They come to your mom's house and they like sit you down and tell you how great it's going to be at Ohio State. And meanwhile, there's this not just sort of ethical rot within one person, but the, a, a systemic sort of a, a, a kind of protection racket for people to say, hey, you come in and, you know, if, if it doesn't work out here and something bad happens, you can go somewhere else and get another job. And um, it's just it's, it's, it's just another sign of how institutions can sort of fester in these ways. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think that the really interesting thing about coaching in particular is that the higher you rise in the profession, and it's really hard to get any higher than Urban Meyer in college football, I think Nick Saban, as far as coaches working right now, is the only one who's more esteemed than he is. But the higher that you rise, the more of a reputation you get somehow for being a good person, or not even necessarily a good person, but like a molder of men and a leader of men and someone who's righteous and upright. And you would actually think that it would be the opposite, (laughs) given (laughs) just how bloodthirsty um, college sports is, given how morally bankrupt it is, 
given the fact that you need to put any kind of qualms aside about the NCAA system, about football in particular, what it does to players, both in terms of taking advantage of them monetarily, but also in terms of the damage it does to their bodies, what you have to do as far as being ruthless and cutting players, getting, you know, pulling them off scholarship if they don't perform. And yet, whether it's Joe Paterno, whether it's Urban Meyer or, or whoever, these guys just get the reputation for being just so like ethical <laughs> and wise and we're going to teach these people right from wrong. And it just can't, that just can't be right, can it? Well, I think that's exactly why they're so valuable and why they keep getting these jobs. Because if you can master that coach speak and be able to at least present yourself in even a somewhat convincing way that you like do care about these players and you want to foster leadership and blah, 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 and whatever else they say, then, you know, like colleges want that. They want that uh, facade of, you know, like wholesomeness or whatever it is. So I think that the coaches who do master that, um, I think that reputation only bolsters their value as head coaches. Players are essentially instruments. They are totally objectified and they're just used until they don't you know, their eligibility is over or they go to NFL or whatever. I mean, that is the perfect way to end up where Urban Meyer has ended up. When, you know, when a uh, when a coach is just another instrument or an asset for you in your program, you're disinclined to let your asset dither away because of something that you can potentially ignore, right? Like the ideology behind college sports is one that will, like they inevitably lead to rot in other areas because you're not seeing people as people. I want to play you guys a clip. So immediately after Meyer said the thing that we that we played before from Big Ten Media Day, he explained how they deal with situations at Ohio State. And I want to play that for you guys. This recent one was, uh, you know, you press pause. It's something our team lives by, E plus R equals O. You get an event. You press pause, get your mind right, and step up. Press pause to gather information, uh, get your mind right to gather energy, and and then step up to do the right thing. That's uh, the position that I hold, and that's why we did that. So, did you guys get that? E plus R equals O. I have no idea what that what means. What is that? <laughs> but I just found it so telling that when the th- the thing that's that's happening around the program is we heard that this guy committed a crime, there's like some dumb jargony thing (laughs) that he can just like plug that into. And like, as I tell my team all the time, we press pause and E plus R equals O, just like how systematized (laughs) everything is, how inhumane it sounds. I found that like more, it seemed like he was telling on himself a little bit there. One thing that, I mean, this goes to the point about like, you know, coach speak and, None of them make any sense when they really talk. And then they get mad. It, this is one of those things that it also comes down to sort of the the positioning of coaches uh, in the media. Like the way he was able to sort of uh, shut down the journalist uh, at the in the first press conference. Like when you think that other people are stupid and you're like you're Moses on the on the mountain. <laughs> right. You just like you you throw bullshit out there like that. And. You know, people either like, you know, hum their agreement or like sing your praises all the time. I think it just that's a clear example of someone being made stupider by their like position in the world. Yeah, and that's a powerful guy, right? Like somebody who can stand up there, 
just say something that's completely untrue. And not only was it untrue, he said that people were dumb for even bringing it up in the first place. I think that's exactly right. This is somebody who never thought that he would be put on leave or that anybody would call him out. He thought he was untouchable. And he might be untouchable because A.D. Gene Smith still hasn't said anything about this. And maybe the investigation will finish and he'll be fired and Gene Smith will be gone or resign in shame. Um, But, you know, maybe not. And I, I think this entire thing rests on the conclusion of this investigation. Yeah, it all comes down to this like independent panel that they've put together with your kind of usual litany of lawyers and politicians and and they've said that they'll come to a decision within 14 days so before the season starts we can look forward to that um but laura before we finish this segment i think we should talk about uh the media part of this and brett mcmurphy was the guy who broke the story he was laid off by espn in april of 2017 along with a bunch of other folks and as um you guys wrote on deadspin there was an interview with him He is being paid by ESPN to write reports on his Facebook page um, because because he has this like non-compete. If he wants to still get paid by ESPN, he can't write for anyone else. And so he's doing these stories direct to Facebook, uh, which I find totally fascinating. Yeah. um, Nick Martin had a really good piece on Deadspin. He talked to McMurphy and it it is just bizarre that he's still under contract but he's breaking news on facebook and then espn has to aggregate all of his work on espn.com i mean he had he wrote that he was on sports center more for this story than he had in his entire time at um espn and i mean that's just it when espn is so behind on such a big the biggest story in college football that's embarrassing when it's one of their former employees that they laid off in a mostly symbolic attempt to appease shareholders or whatever, it's even more embarrassing. Yeah. And I mean, this is a case where this is a story that McMurphy has totally owned, not just in breaking it, but there have been a couple occasions where Meyer has said something, you know, what when Meyer said what he said at the press conference, McMurphy immediately came out with another Facebook post. It's like, <laughs> here are um, Courtney Smith's text messages, like to Shelly Meyer, where Shelly Meyer acknowledges, like, yeah, you, uh, I, I know about this domestic abuse. And so this is not just an example of like, oh, man, one of our former uh, reporters just like got this thing and we'll catch up. Like he's just been at every single development of the story. It's like the only good Facebook story in like a year, you know, <laughs> it's like when when we all thought that Facebook was like going to be the place where, the, you know, the voice for the voiceless. This is like this is the only good thing that's happened to them. Yeah, but I also kind of hate that he gets that Facebook gets this, you know, like people yeah. embedding his Facebook posts. It's like, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> the other like really weird media aspect of this that I have not figured out. <laughs> is that James O'Keefe of so Project weird. Veritas, the like yeah. Acorn expose guy, the uh, Planned Parenthood. The, right. Yeah. So the the right wing, like, uh, you know, con- conservative video hitman, he put out a video in which he interviewed four former 
players of Myers in Florida alleging um, essentially that Meyer ignored injuries and that he mistreated players there. And I have no no reason uh, not to believe that these players and these hidden camera interviews are telling you the truth. I mean, the only reason not to believe them is that um, O'Keefe has just like kind of been serially wrong about about things. But the I'm just really confused, Vincent, about why what O'Keefe's motivation would be here. Um, it's apparently part of a series about football, but it's not about like how players protesting the anthem are bad. I just really don't understand what's going on here. It's really strange, and I don't know, man. I, I part of it makes me think that it's like a way of bolstering the rest of his like crazy right wing claim. It's like, look, I, here's some real journalism for you. You know, if you like, if you don't believe, uh, you know, the other stuff, you got to believe this. And then what does that mean about the other stuff? If, but, you know, so I, I think it is a sort of a gambit for respectability in some way, but the details of it are nuts. And it's like, I don't know. There's stuff about like, I was doing leg presses until my quad exploded or like, <laughs> Um, there was bacteria under my skin and I was carrying, it was just like a lot of just awful, awful details, which I like, again, have no reason to disbelieve. And it sort of furthers my growing suspicion that like football is inextricable from (laughs) abuse and that like abuse is not some incidental thing that is happening. Not some like cancer, you know, that's spreading within football, but that football is some sort of malignant thing itself. Um, but again, like, I, I just don't know where to go with it. It's nuts. Yeah. I, I mean, I tend to be extremely wary of anything that James O'Keefe... Laura Wagner's and- wary of everything. I think <laughs> rightly, rightly so. <laughs> okay, but especially Project Veritas. I am especially wary of Project Veritas and anything that's edited. I mean, we don't know the conditions under which the players were talking to them. Um, and... But but be, I mean, even if we do like even if everything they said is true, I do think it's very weird that he, this is the series that they've latched on to now um, over at Deadspin. We were floating some theories. One is that like it's a attempt to distract from the Jim Jordan stuff um, about what he knew about uh, the sexual abuse. Um, another was like, is he tackling college football to like own the libs somehow um or like, <laughs> i don't understand that well i don't d- none, yeah none of it makes sense laura come on right. we we uh the the existence of those theory those theories while admirable i think proves our point that nothing about this really makes sense um last point before we end this is that um the kind of the third kind of unusual media aspect of this is that courtney smith did a 20-minute interview with a multi-platform sports network called Stadium, um, which I think I, I, I think the more important thing to focus on there is Courtney Smith telling her story and not where she told it. But um, I, I just think that this is an example of like the media ecosystem that we live in now, that this has become the biggest story in sports via these like untraditional um mechanisms. And I think, you know, the fact that Courtney Smith told her story was brave enough to do it. Um, it seems to have had a, a big effect on Ohio State and people are paying attention. Just the fact that she said it anywhere and people were able to watch it. That's really what mattered. Yeah, I wondered about that, too, because I think she could have 
um, taken that story anywhere. Um, if she was talking to Brett, uh, or if she was talking to McMurphy, maybe he like advised her not to take it to ESPN or something. Um, well, I think but- McMurphy has a deal with Stadium for for when he when his contract with ESPN runs out. I think he's going there, uh, so I think okay. he probably pointed her that way. Oh yeah. well, that makes sense. Yeah, and it just got as as much attention, I think, as it would have anywhere else. Yep. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus, we're going to talk about Donald Trump calling LeBron James dumb and praising Michael Jordan and whether that proves definitively that LeBron is the best basketball player of all time. I jest slightly, but we will discuss. And if you want to hear that, you should join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Over the weekend, Ray Lewis, Randy Moss, Brian Dawkins, Brian Urlacher, Jerry Kramer, Bobby Bethard, and Robert Brazil gave speeches in Canton, Ohio to celebrate their inductions into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The eighth member of the class of 2018, wide receiver Terrell Owens, made the bold, unprecedented, and frankly weird move to hold his own private induction ceremony at his alma mater, the University of Tennessee Chattanooga. Why did he do that? Let us allow T.O. to explain. Many of you may be wondering why we're, we're here instead of Canton. There's been a lot of speculation and false reports as to why I chose not to be there. I would like to set the record straight. It's not because how many times it took for me to be voted into the hall. It's about the mere fact that the sports writers are not in alignment with the mission and core values of the Hall of Fame. I mean, I think we can all agree that sports writers suck. I think that it's a um, <laughs> the a enemy bold of the people. Mo- <laughs> it's a bold move to uh, be so mad about sports writers that even after they let you in the Hall of Fame, you need to engineer <laughs> your entire uh, ceremony around the fact that you don't like uh, sports writers. Uh, Vincent, uh, I wonder what you thought of the Terrell Owens Hall of Fame speech and spectacle. I loved it. And so, but I am kind of conflicted because I do, you know, especially in our like sort of larger context, uh, dump dumping on the media in speeches is sort of a like triggering form for me. But in this case, I just do think that Terrell Owens has always, always, always gotten a bad rap because of when you think, especially when we, what we just talked about with Urban Meyer, when you think about the qualities that are often sort of swept under the rug in football or um, explained away as signs of healthy aggression in football, um, guys who um, talk about stuff, talk in sentences that you can barely understand and sort of paper over the kind of awful things that are attached to them, um, that's celebrated. 
And on the other hand, we have a guy like T.O. who is so human. There's not there's not a person who I want to talk to more than T.O. He speaks his mind. He uh, airs his frustrations. He uh, refers to himself as being built like a Greek god. He is he's amazing. Okay, and he um, has a there's a dignity to him that and, and by the way, he's never been arrested for anything. He's never no one's ever said that he's hit a woman. Nobody's ever said that he's uh, you know been in trouble in a way that would have hurt another person. He just he just isn't the sort of military model of uh, the, the the kind of guy who would fall under the influence of an urban Meyer, for example, um, and sort of follow a guy like that off a cliff. He'd sooner dance in the middle of the field and piss a guy like that off. So, well, I think the I think the strongest argument against To that you can make, stipulating everything that you just said, the strongest argument you can make is that he's an asshole and that he's an egomaniac, <laughs> and that he made he may always made everything about him, and that his teams didn't like him, and that he was bad in the locker room. And so, so let's say all of that is true. It's like okay, like who can? Yeah, is that is that is that that big a deal? Exactly. He's a, and first of all, we like. I miss that kind. There now in football where the, everything's about the quarterback. I, I miss the sort of asshole wide receiver. First of all, like there there is a place for a guy like that. And also, like who cares? That has nothing to do with his eligibility for of the Hall of Fame. It has nothing to do with like, um, you know, it's just it's irrelevant. Yeah, he's an asshole, and you know we need assholes to a certain extent as long as they're not hitting people. Yeah, I mean, the knock against T.O. has always been that he's a glory boy epitomized by when he took the Sharpie out and signed the ball in the end zone. I mean, like, I thought that was great. That's what I remember most about standing T.O. On the, standing on the star <laughs> yeah, to celebrate. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but, but like, that stuff, um, I, I mean, I think that's fun. And I think football is kind of, like, getting around to thinking that's more fun. You know, they've relaxed the touchdown celebration rules and stuff. I, I feel like today today's NFL would be a little bit more friendly to T.O. Um, but I don't I totally understand why he took a shot at sports writers who pushed the narrative for years that he was a jerk and his teammates <laughs> hated him. I mean, in his teammates have since come out. Many of his teammates have since, have since come out and said that he was a great teammate. And he kept the locker room together and he was a leader. So it's let's like, not go too far. I, I mean, think that so- there were some people on his teams who hated him. Yeah, but there were people who liked him, too. And, like, which ones did we hear from when he was playing? The ones who hated him, mostly. Right. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I want to play the end of his speech. Um, Actually, I I did put another clip together. This is the guy famous for saying, I love me some me. And so I think (laughs) we need to hear that. Let's play that. Because I love me some me. I love me some me. I can't stand myself. (laughs) All right. So... We've got that on the record now. He loves, hey, self-love he loves him. is good. Yep. He loves him some him. <laughs> All right, now let's hear the end of his, uh, his speech. Don't be afraid to be you. I celebrate and I empower you today. We have more commonalities than differences. This entire speech you thought was about me, this was for you. Okay, that's definitely not true. Um, <laughs> um, let's also note that the day after the speech, T.O., who is 44 years old, uh, worked out for a Canadian football league team because he still wants to play. 
I mean, maybe uh, <laughs> Tio going to Canada at age 44. Maybe he's doing that for us, too. Vincent. Hey, he'd be better than Manziel. <laughs> First of all, yeah, I want to see him. There needs to be a football league like the big three in basketball where it's like old guys playing against one another. <laughs> I would definitely watch that. I would watch that. And I would. And if T.O. was involved, I would, 100, I would buy whatever the league pass equivalent of that is. And um, he's also just like an incredibly athletic. I mean, of course, he's an incredibly athletic guy. But I recently saw him. There was a pick, uh, something of him playing pickup. And he just like just fully dunked on a person. And he's, again, 44 years old. I mean, he's he's amazing. I'm pro T.O. All right, let's move on to Ray Lewis. Uh, He gave a speech, Laura, that can be best described as, I don't know, can it be best described as anything? I mean, he was prowling the stage 33 minutes long. He had a wireless microphone, sort of like a, you know, mega church pastor. Um, We have a clip from that as well. Let's listen I want us to work together to really take on these challenges, to look at our goals at what unites us. Surely there's something. How about stopping our kids from dying in schools? Can we please put prayer back in schools? Please. How about, how, how about protecting our children from a terrifying life of being sex trafficked? I'd lose my mind if my daughter got sick. How about helping our neighbors? They can't afford their medicine. How can we do this? How can we come together? The answer is simple. The answer is love. I'm sorry, but I just started laughing when he talked about sex trafficking, which I know is like the exact wrong thing to do. But just like what an odd collection of things. It's like first he talks about um, prevent our kids from dying in schools. And before people understood, he was like, and we should have school prayer. Just people start to start to clap. Um then he talks about it's bad to have children be sex trafficked, which stipulated, and then getting old people their medicine. Um, <laughs> it was a really odd speech and just very Ray Lewis. Yeah, and what you didn't get from the clip was that the way he's walking around the stage and like striking these weird poses. Um, actually, my <laughs> colleague at Deadspin, Chris Thompson, said it the best. He said he was holding poses with all the staccato swagger of the lead singer in an 80s hair metal band. That's like exactly what it was like. Um, but yeah, I mean, the whole you can ascribe a lot of things to Ray Lewis, um, but like this speech made zero sense. He often makes zero sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He's also like a whatever E E equals M E R two whatever Urban Meyer said. <laughs> like he's on that wavelength. He was picking that up. But whatever it was, he knew exactly what Urban Meyer meant. And he's like been allowed not to make sense for a long, yeah. a long time. In a way, you know, I don't want to bring it back to T.O., but it's like, which one would you, which guy do you, the fact that like Ray Lewis is like, Mr. Football at this point, and T.O. is is persona non grata, it's like, it. I, I feel like I'm in upside down world. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and not to, um, you know, make everything about Trump, but the whole stream of consciousness quality of, of the speech, it was like Trump learned how to do motivational coach speak or something. Like, that was my <laughs> first impression of it. Yeah. There were two really good pieces about Lewis on the occasion of his induction, one by Robert Klimko um, of SI and the other by Kevin Van Valkenburg 
of ESPN, both of which covered Lewis and the Ravens. Klimko wrote about just the cult of personality around Lewis in Baltimore and how protected he was and how impossible it was to ask him any difficult questions, particularly around the double murders um, uh, that he was in the vicinity of um, and and how, you know, when Klimko tried to get comment from him, he was it treated like he had just done the worst possible thing anyone could possibly do. And then Lewis said, oh, I'm praying for you, like Klimko had done something wrong. And then Van Valkenburg kind of complicated that a little bit and said, you know, Lewis actually has answered questions about those double murders, that it's clear that he, you know, he wasn't the person who did the stabbing, even if he did potentially obstruct justice. But people only want to hear from Lewis about it because he's the famous one. And he actually has done really good things in the Baltimore community, even if he is self-aggrandizing. Um, and so reading those two pieces back to back, I found to be, you know, really good and gave kind of a complete picture of the good and bad of this guy. Yeah, that's sort of what I meant earlier when I said you can ascribe anything to Ray Lewis because I think that it is easy and right to want to ask tough questions about his role in the murders and obstruction of justice. Um, I mean, he hasn't addressed them, really. Um, but I think uh, Kevin raised some good points in his um, in his story. But I also think that you know, if you want to, you can try to make all of Ray Lewis's shtick coherent, um, but I don't think it is. Um, I, I I also really liked reading those back to back, but I do think you can kind of pick out that, um, you know, Kevin Van Valkenburg covered the Ravens as a beat reporter for a long time and, you know, feels... He, he lived or lives in Baltimore, and I think he probably feels a little bit more of a tie to that community. Sure. Um, so I, I, I still, I don't, I didn't find that like as moving, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Well, Vincent, the Klimko piece and about the kind of protective wall around Lewis is reminiscent of what we were talking about with Urban Meyer again, right? Just this notion that how dare you ask these questions not only am i not going to answer the question but i'm going to bully you and mock you for even asking right and the that that sinister touch that you mentioned about him being like i'll pray for you you know i, I forgive you um is this sort of awful this is where you see the the sort of the culture of football dovetailing very close to the sort of prosperity gospel culture that's like nobody ever does anything really wrong everything can be kind of explained away and also the person who's done the worst thing is somehow the victim uh in the situation um that asking questions is a form of persecution that that cynicism um cynicism of the kind that um journalists uh you know tend to you know tend to partake in is 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 makes you some sort of unhealthy doubter. Um, it, the Klemko piece was amazing, and it kind of just turned my stomach. It, it the the way uh, there's a moment in that piece after he he asked, but before the sort of um, 
Christ-like forgiveness of Ray Lewis, where all of the the sort of PR folks at the Ravens are kind of being like, "Why would you? Why would you ask that question?" Like it seems like they're not only sort of professionally affronted, but personally, like they can't imagine why um, their sort of like in-house TED talker would be subjected to to this kind of question. You know, not even accusation, a question. It was kind of disheartening. Yeah, and I think that. We'll probably get into this a little bit in our next segment about the helmet rule, but the other thing that I found really notable and smart about the Van Valkenburg piece was this idea that even though Ray Lewis just retired five years ago, it's that the NFL has really changed significantly in that period and just the way that he played and kind of him as like this avatar of toughness and manliness and the the aggression and the just wanting to destroy people on the field. I mean, I think that is why he, rather than Terrell Owens, is kind of seen as this um, guy who stands for something bigger and who stands for the sport. It's almost like, again, even though it's only five years ago, he's like represents this bygone era in a way. Yeah, I I think that's definitely right. But I also think that he's more embraced by the NFL because of his like humility shtick. I mean, he's the complete opposite to T.O. in that way. He has the humbleness. He has the God stuff. You know, he famously said, what was it, last season that Odell Beckham had like lost God and that's mm-hmm. why he was having problems or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. like that is his entire thing. And I think it's easier for the NFL to sell that version even if he's full of shit. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On Thursday in the first preseason game of the year, the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio, the Ravens beat the Bears 17 to 16. Scintillating stuff, I'm sure, for the people who watch preseason football for some reason. But there was something interesting about the game. The Ravens were given three 15-yard penalties on account of a new rule that prohibits players from lowering their heads to initiate and make contact with their helmets against their opponents. The way the rule is written, it kind of makes it seem like playing football is now illegal. And I say that not as someone who thinks all these new safety rules are for wusses, but as someone who has watched football and knows that making contact with one's helmet against an opponent is something that happens like a dozen times each play. One of the players who was flagged uh, safety for the Ravens, Bennett Jackson, said he thinks this was all for show. I feel like they're trying to harp on it a lot more in preseason. So they're going to throw flags even on times when it's not necessarily head to head just to make people aware of it. He said that he spoke to the ref and the ref said, hey, it's preseason. We got to throw the flag. Uh, Laura, I'm wondering what you think of that idea that they're just doing this in preseason for show. And also, do you think if they do keep making these calls, would the players be able to adjust or is there just no way to play football without hitting dudes with your helmet? Yeah, I mean, even players seem divided on if it's possible to 
tackle people and play football without having your head hit other players. Um, uh, keep to leave is for the rule, but um, other players have expressed their doubts about it. I, as someone who has never played football but watches it, I don't really see how players can tackle. I mean, even if you lead with your shoulders, your head is going to like make contact at the same time. So I don't, I don't know how players can adjust. First of all, um, I definitely think the idea that this is more for show in the preseason. Um, is accurate. I mean, they roll out all sorts of rule changes every year from, you know, holding and the catch rules and various changes to the game that get called more in preseason and then sort of back to business as usual um, for the regular season. But um, yeah, I I actually have no idea how this is going to shake out. It seems like something that will either fade or it will be a a scandal all throughout the season. Um, every position player other than quarterbacks will be talking about it after every game if it's called during the games. And uh, it was interesting. The um, the uh, the Viking sa- safety Andrew um, Sendejo he wore this uh, this hat make football violent again, and it made me think that like the where this is all headed, right? If they enforce this rule and it continues to be talked about, because it will, there will be a Trump tweet that comes out of this. <laughs> He will, like, in some way tie the anthem protest to, like, and also the games being wussified and what happened. And, you know, it just it seems like a a ripe culture war issue. Um, And I I just don't know what to think about it. I mean, I'm glad that they care. uh, They whatever seem to want to seem to care. But at the same time, it's like part of me thinks we should just let football go the way of boxing. Like everybody knows what they're getting into. It's. Because after a certain point, like, you can't even be a lineman without crashing into somebody. But then it's going to go the way of boxing, too, where, you know, it's mostly, like, poor people getting into it as a way out. And, I mean, it's already kind of like that. And it's like, I mean, I think the only way to – I think football is going to have to fundamentally – change um and i don't think it's with this new helmet rule which i think will take a whole generation of like peewee kids learning how to tackle the right way if there even is a way to tackle the right way but i mean i think and this i have to give credit to my dad shout out dad this was his idea from like (laughs) literally 15 years ago and that's just to get rid of helmets and go the way of like rugby or whatever because those guys aren't smashing their heads in to each other i mean it's a violent sport but it's not violent in the same way you don't see quite the same amount of head trauma um and so increasingly i think that's probably the way to go you'd also be able to see their faces in a way that you know you can see nba good for marketing yeah they'd be like they'd be stars yeah you know but yeah so there is a big risk of spinal injuries and uh rugby laura's dad yeah, so that's true. i don't know if, i don't know if we <laughs> yeah, want to, dad <laughs> i don't know i don't know if we want to see that i think the culture war point is really smart i mean i have to ding andrew sendejo a little bit because as those of you out there who write headlines professionally know make football violent again is a rule of two violation you can't change two things in the known phrase, make America great again. You can't say make, you can say make America violent again, or you can say 
make football great again, but you can't say make football violent again. That just that just doesn't work, Zendaya. I think you but, have more of a problem with the rule of twos than most people, though. I do remember that from back when I was an intern. <laughs> this is my first time a, hearing of this, and that's I uh, a, that's just a slate peccadillo. <laughs> All right, fine. All right, fine. Andrew Zendaya's make football violent again hat is endorsed by. Deadspin and the New Yorker, but <laughs> but not by Slate. But no, I think that this is going to be a culture war issue. And I think we saw that. I didn't watch the preseason game, but I watched the the clips of the um, the calls. And this was on you know the Sunday night football crew, the Thursday night um, crew, Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. And when they were reviewing the calls, they were showing them in super slow motion. They were debating, you know, should this be a penalty or not? And just by the nature of like the kind of instant replay culture we have in football now where just the game stops and you just like rewind so much stuff. It's just like just by virtue of the amount of time we're going to be looking at these plays, it's going to be a big topic of conversation. And I think that's totally right. It's just like after every game, it's going to be, you know, should this have been the helmet rule? Should this not have been the helmet rule? And I think it's just going to get talked about constantly. Yeah, I think the NFL likes that, though. Um, I think they like having it's like a whole cottage industry now of debating the rules and if the calls lined up with the rules and if they should. And like you see that. that. Yeah, I think they do. I think it's like a whole nother way to keep talking about the games, you know, just like have like rules. So people who like know about football, like the football experts on the couch can argue about the rules and it's like I think that's totally a thing that the NFL likes. I can certainly imagine like Chris Collinsworth being like Al I, I just don't know I, how can he hit him there like look <laughs> I don't I don't get it Al you know like it just, uh, I, it's just it's awful I really hope. Yeah I mean entire yeah. news cycles go on about if a catch was a catch like that's it's just going to be more I mean I don't. The NFL does not want people talking about this Laura you're like extremely wrong mm. about this. Mm. <laughs> It's, it's engagement. They just want people to get to stay engaged with the game. They would much prefer people to be talking about anything, anything else. I mean, I guess maybe they'd prefer this to be able to talk about the national anthem. I yeah, or could, that players are getting shot up with Toradol or that they're the domestic abusers or everything else that's fucked up yeah, with the NFL. On the, <laughs> on the continuum, I would, right. I would agree with you. But they would much prefer people to be talking about uh, the balletic uh, nature of an Antonio Brown uh, touchdown catch, for, <laughs> for instance. But the other thing that I find really fascinating about this is that there's a rookie, Roquan Smith, a linebacker um, who was drafted by the Bears, and he hasn't signed a contract. And in part, the um, dispute between him and the team is about who's going to pay the fines uh, for you know any unsportsmanlike conduct calls. And that, to me, is a fascinating issue about whether the players should be held responsible for their uh, behavior on the field when they've been taught to do this uh, one particular way their whole lives as I think Laura said it's going to probably take a generation to change to change this and you're going to like take away their money I mean that that seems a little bit harsh to me the thing that kind of was missing from that piece rightly or wrongly was the place of the union in all of this the union is often missing from the NFL. Yeah, it's just it it it's ridiculous. I mean, when you think about how much of the collective bargaining you you is explicit in basketball, like and how their organizing is is part of the story of that league. It it just the the absence of the football union, that should just that that should be something that should not 
be litigated by a rookie and his agents, you know? And the fact that no one steps in and says that's ridiculous, um, it, 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 it just speaks to how ill-used these guys have been. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Let us end it there and move on to After Balls. This week, I wanted to pay tribute to George Barclay, who played pro baseball and football, and who was one of the people credited with inventing the football helmet in the 1890s. Although, I must confess, the website antiquefootball.com says Barclay's proto-helmet, which was really just three strips of leather lashed together, was more like an ear protector. The guy just wanted, didn't want to get cauliflower ears. Um, Barclay was nicknamed the Rose because of his good looks. So we had that going for him. Uh, Laura, you ready to grace us with a George Rose Barclay? Yes. Okay. Wimbledon was last month and the U.S. Open starts later this month. So I'm going to take this opportunity to further a good idea for tennis reform. And that idea is to get rid of the best of five set matches for good. So in tennis, men play best of three set matches at all tournaments except at Grand Slams. Women play best of three set matches in all tournaments, including Grand Slams. This makes for some extremely long marathon matches at Grand Slams. At Wimbledon this year, tall dudes who struggle to break their opponent's serve, John Isner and Kevin Anderson, played for six and a half hours until the match finally ended in the fifth set at 26-24. Eight years ago, Isner and Nico Mahout played a match that lasted 11 hours over several days with a fifth set that ended at 70-68. There's increasingly agreement that these marathon five-set matches are too long, they ruin the players for their next match, they mess up tournament schedules, they turn would-be tennis fans off from the game, etc. And that the solution to this is to institute a fifth-set tiebreak at um, all of the Grand Slams. Right now, the fifth-set tiebreak is only in place at the U.S. Open. But I think the problem isn't the lack of a tiebreak in the fifth set. It is that they even get to a fifth set. Five-set matches can easily last longer than five hours, even just to get to seven-six. It's too long, and it's bad for the players. It's bad for the game, with the only upside being some twisted emphasis on, like, manliness and stamina. I think the fact that men and women play different length matches a few times a year anyhow is pretty silly and outdated. So the idea that Grand Slam should make the men's matches best of three is starting to pick up steam. Caitlin Thompson mentioned this idea on this podcast last month after Wimbledon. Tennis journalist Ben Rothenberg has repeatedly made the case for ending best of five on Twitter. Um, Also in March of this year, Billie Jean King made her case for it from the player's perspective. She said, personally, I don't want the men playing five sets anymore. I think it takes too much out of them. One time the players played in the Australian Open final, it took six hours. They could hardly walk off the court. I guarantee you that this took a year off their careers. So that might have been an exaggeration, the year off their careers, but there's definitely an argument for quality over quantity. Um, Tennis has evolved. Rackets are better. Players hit harder. Conditioning is better. And the rallies just last much longer than they used to. Um, So the game is changing and tennis should change with it and get rid of five sets at Grand Slams. 
The really fascinating, I agree with you, but the really fascinating thing here is that pretty much in all endeavors that I can think of in which the men have, you know, had, whether it's a longer length of match or a longer distance, the way that equality has been reached is that, you know, now we'll have women run the marathon because we no longer think that their like uteruses will fall out if they run <laughs> 26 miles or like the 2020 Olympics. Katie Ledecky is now going to be able to swim the 1500 meter freestyle, which for some, you know, dumb reason, aka sexism, there was no 1500 meters for women. It was only for men. But this is an example. And I think, you know, you make a good argument that the way to get equality is for the men to do less. Right. Also, just logistically, if the women were also playing five sets at Grand Slams, tournaments would have to last like, what, at least a week longer. (laughs) (laughs) Will anyone think of the poor tournament organizers? Um, Vincent, what do you have for us? What is your George Rose Barclay? I would like to talk about NBA players in August. Um, There's this cliche these days that the NBA is a 12-month league. That um, after the finals in June, you get um, the draft, you get free agency in July, and then you slide right into training camps, and uh, and all of a sudden in October it's the season. But it's not true. It's an eleventh month league, and in August these guys seem tremendously bored. I'm sure that you know in their lives, outside of when we see them, they're watching tape of last year. They're working on jump shots and uh, post-up moves and things that to enhance their game. They're in the, 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 the weight room, some of them. John Wall, by the way, seems not to have been in the weight room. There's a picture of him, um, and he looks like me. It's the most gratifying thing I've ever seen. Um, but in, it, it, there's this odd ritual that's only kind of become visible, visible to us through social media. We used to see it a little bit on TV, but now um, it, it's wide open for us. And what happens is that basketball players go to basketball camps, usually basketball camps that they've put on or they are, they're paying for, um, and they just dunk on teenagers or, like, cross them over. And I, I'm not sh- I think it's more gratifying for the team. It's like some kid just gets to talk about being posterized by Joel Embiid, the clown prince of the NBA. Um but uh, recently, this week, I saw I saw two uh, great things. One was Jason Tatum, who I just can't wait to see play next year. But this did not satisfy my 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 desire to see him play because he was playing against a, f- a full on teenager. He gave him two really hard dribbles, one good step back, and the team fell in a way that was amazing. He just like slid across the ground. Jason Tatum looks at him for a half a second, bounds toward the the, the rim, and dunks it. Um, another one, my favorite thing that I saw this week at all was Victor Oladipo. He's crossing this kid over. One dribble, two dribbles. Cross, cross, cross. Victor Oladipo, uh, the best, the most improved player in the NBA, a person that I want to see playing against other NBA players, against a, 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 a kid who must have been 15 years old, throws a basketball against the wall behind the basket, leaps into the air to meet that ball right inches beneath the rim and he dunks it and you know you can just feel the sweat from the side of his back getting on this kid's face (laughs) and then i've never in my life seen a happier teen so long live board nba summers long live basketball camps that end in in dubious honors 
for NBA players. Here, here. Did either of you guys go to a basketball camp that, like that? Like I, I went to a camp um, in New Orleans when I was uh, growing up, and it was at Newman, the school that I went to through eighth grade, where Randy Livingston uh, went, who was the national player of the year. And there was a little demo for the kids where he just dunked like five or six times and we were all like <laughs> ooing and eyeing, but it, he didn't dunk on anyone. Um, I feel like this is an innovation that the children of today are getting um, that, that my generation, we just missed. Well, yeah. the best part is when the teens all, are they still doing the thing where they flee after the dunk? You know, there's a huge <laughs> dunk and then they just like run, they run out around. of the yeah, like yeah, yeah. screaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the thing at Rucker Park where everybody like storms. It's like the opposite. It's just like, ah! <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's it's funny. I think that it's definitely like the like on the kid thing. But wasn't there like I can't remember, maybe 2010, 2011, some high schooler or college kid dunked on LeBron James and then Nike like oh, cleared yeah. the internet of the the video, like the evidence was I didn't but by time I had heard about it, it was already like vanished. What? Um, I, that hmm. that was a thing. That was a thing. Um so yeah, I think it's new. Um I did not go to any of those basketball camps. I was yeah, very jealous. Either. My friends got to went to go to um, the five star basketball camp, which is like fairly famous. Like those those orange t shirts. But I was I, I was I was not doing that. I was <laughs> so I had forgotten about this. I just looked it up, Laura. Um, you're gonna be uh, uh, amused by hearing this for the first time. The story was LeBron had at his skills academy in 2009. Mm-hmm. Someone dunked on him in a in a pickup game. It was a college player, and I will reveal the identity of the college player in a second because it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> someone, I can't so, wait. someone dunked on him, and a, reportedly a Nike representative confiscated tapes of the dunk <laughs> after conferring with James. The guy who dunked on him was Jordan Crawford. Wow! <laughs> See that I that I did not know. So wait, does this video All-time exist NBA anywhere? Scrub, Jordan Crawford. Uh, I think that there is a video of it um, that you can find on YouTube that's like from, yeah, here it is, HD full video, LeBron James dunked on. <laughs> can you link me? The, the video, video, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send that to you after the show <laughs> and to all of our listeners, Laura. Okay, Josh, what's your George Rose Barkley? So I was wasting time on YouTube the other day and I'm like mad at the YouTube algorithm that it didn't serve up that Jordan Crawford dunking on LeBron. So, Vincent, thank you for being superior to the uh, YouTube algorithm for reminding <laughs> me of that. But the algorithm does like generally do a pretty good job of like sucking me down rabbit holes for hours at a time when I should be doing other stuff. And I have to say the algorithm did its job uh, yesterday because it showed me a highly enjoyable video titled Finals 2016 Classic Tetris World Championship. As you might have guessed, this is a video of the finals of the 2016 Classic Tetris World Championship. Uh, Tetris, uh, do I have to explain what Tetris is? I think... Maybe for for those out there who do not know what Tetris is, I don't want to I don't want to alienate you. They're falling blocks. You try to create lines, horizontal lines, and you create one. It's cleared off the screen. You know Tetris. Anyway, the video that YouTube served up was a broadcast of a best three out of five competition between the legend Jonas Neubauer, 
who has won the tournament seven out of eight times it's been held, and the upstart underdog, Jeff Moore. This is a 37-minute video. I will confess that I watched a disturbing percentage of those 37 minutes. I've cut out a representative bit of the commentary here for you guys. This is from game four of Jeff versus Jonas. And for those who don't know, a Tetris in the game of Tetris comes when you clear four lines off the screen of once at once. It's worth a lot of points. <laughs> All right, let's listen. Definitely, we just want to keep it clean, keep it, keep it keep close it, to the bottom, keep, keep it low. Yeah. yeah, I mean, boom, Tetris for Jeff. All right, we're uh, two, a couple of Tetrises away from transitioning here. here Jeff goes. didn't get a good run of Tetrises on the way here, and no. Jonas's lead has widened as a result. Yeah, and Jonas is ready for another one. And boom, Tetris for Jonas. Boom, Tetris for Jeff. Jeff answers Just got a little bit of work to do. Both have 129, a single bowl transition. Here Jonas's play field's not ideal, with but he'll Tetris, be able to deal though. with it. Boom, Tetris for Jeff. Okay. That was a the good deficit. time for him to get a Tetris. Yep. That was a really good time for him to get a wow. Tetris. Um, scintillating stuff. I watched, I watched this whole video. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's move forward a bit and let me set the scene for you. Jeff has 186 lines and a score of 597, 560. It's like you're there. Um, while Jonas has 187 lines and he's in the lead with a score of 632, 310. Jeff desperately needs a Tetris. Will Jeff Tetris? Let's go back to our broadcast. Getting a little dependent uh, here. Okay. Oh, we gave it to him. Yes. He's ready for a Tetris. Ready for a Tetris. For a Tetris. Where is the long bar? There it is. It? Boom. Yeah. Jeff. Neck and neck there we, we are again. Jeff, yes. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Tetris for Jeff. So that oh, Tetris. No. That Tetris really did tighten things up. It was a great Tetris. Now, moving forward, Jonas was in the lead <laughs> by like, he's in the league by like 18,000. Oh, but Jonas lost. Like, you know, the I don't even know how to describe it. Like, you get all, you get too many of the pieces stacked up, you lose. You lose Tetris, which meant that Jeff just needed to keep on making lines to win this game. Can he do it? Let's return for the excited conclusion of game four of the 2016 Classic Tetris World Championship. Oh my God. Okay, Jeff just needs to make a couple of, a few good placements and maybe a triple will get him to survive, oh, but no. no, it's so not gonna happen, guys. Oh. That was amazing. No Tetris for Jeff. Uh, Jonas, oh, wow. Jonas, Jonas Neubauer was your champion. But what I didn't know before I watched this video, and what I'm guessing you guys didn't know based on your reaction, is that boom Tetris for Jeff is actually a meme. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is the catchiest boom-related quasi-sportscasting phrase since boom goes the dynamite. <laughs> you can actually you can buy a boom Tetris for Jeff t-shirt wow. for $25. The page for that T-shirt reads, you've seen the battle, you've heard the words, and you can't believe your ears. The 2016 Classic Tetris World Championship final match featured Jeff Moore versus Jonas Neubauer, (laughs) and no one can deny, even when Jonas slammed down a Tetris, Jeff got the credit. Never forget with this shirt. Wow. Boom. Tetris for Jeff. A classic Um, Tetris moment. (laughs) Maybe one of the all-time top five Tetris moments. It's on It's on Mount Tetris. Um, the guy that we must credit for this catchphrase is named Chris Tang. According to the International Video Game Hall of Fame and Museum website, Chris Tang is an accomplished game designer, coast player, and gaming tournament champ. He is best known, guys, mm-hmm. as the Sega world champion from the Rock the Rock $25,000 Sonic and Knuckles competition that was aired on MTV. 
in the interest of time, I am not going to tell you about the Sega MTV <laughs> Sonic and Knuckles special, except to say that it is on, on YouTube. You when did it happen? It. it was held on Alcatraz. Whoa. And it was hosted by Bill Bellamy and Daisy Fuentes. I don't know if you can carbon date it, Vincent, from the, it's like the Bill Bellamy. Bill Bellamy, I'm, I'm there now. Yeah, I got it. Daisy Fuentes era. But it was like a release, <laughs> it was like a release special for Sonic and Knuckles. Um, so that's probably where you guys have heard Jeff Tang before. It's from oh, the Rock the, the Rock. Jeff Tang. The Jeff Tang. I got it, yeah. <laughs> All right, that is our show for today. Our producer is uh, Patrick Fort, and our intern is Meredith Ellison. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Boom, Tetris for Laura. Thank you, Laura Wagner, for coming <laughs> on the show. Thanks. And Vincent Cunningham. Boom. Thank you. Tetris for Vincent. Thank you as well. Uh, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.